Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the most beautiful United States of America. Today is the 14th of December, 2020. Now, we've been talking about T-cell activation, particularly we're talking about pyruvate dehydrogenase, control of that particular enzyme and the regulation of how carbon flows directly from glucose to lactic acid in the initial phases of T-cell activation. We're going to talk a little bit now about the AKT, phosphatidylinositol uh, 3 kinase pathway, which works later in T-cell development to reinforce the production of a suite of pro-inflammatory cytokines upon activation with antigen-presenting cells. So that's where we are right now in this discussion. Remember, we're doing T-cells now to get us back up to speed about how the immune system, both in the periphery and the central nervous system, plays a very significant role in the aging process in humans. So let's take a look at the paper published in September uh, 2008 uh, in a journal called Cell Cycle. And uh, this was a paper published uh, with volume seven, and I'll put this in the show notes. I forgot to do it yesterday, so all the papers from yesterday also will be in the show notes. Now, the p phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase, the PI3 kinase, AKT, mTOR network, has been well known to control T-cell differentiation and function. It does so by regulating gene transcription and also translation of messenger RNA. So it affects transcription and translation. Now, there is a model that says that P13 kinase, AKT, mTOR pathway, um, works as sort of a network system. So let's take a look at this. So P13 kinase will activate AKT via phosphorylation. Actually, the AKT will utilize the phosphatidylinositol uh, 1,3 kinase um, to then transfer ultimately that phosphoryl uh, group potential to mTOR. mTOR then will work directly on protein translation. Now, while that's occurring, AKT also directly activates mTOR. Now, that's the mTOR complex one. So there's other proteins involved. That also functions to enhance translation. And when it does so, it will then uh, procure T-cell differentiation and further function. Now, at the same time, the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase will also phosphorylate mTORC2, and mTORC2 will activate AKT. Then the P13 kinase, through that signaling mode and the mTORC2 pathway, will actually also activate transcription. So you have translation and transcription both being controlled via, via this P13 kinase, AKT, mTOR pathway. And again, what you end up with is T-cell differentiation and function, okay? So you have the existence of two distinct mTOR complexes, mTORC1 and mTORC2, and you have a negative feedback loop actually where mTORC1, okay? Now this is really important will block the activation of mTORC2 by the P13 kinase. 
So that slows down the super activation of AKT because the product of AKT uh, activation, that is in during the signaling uh, transduction cascade, is going to be mTORC1 activation. And mTORC1, when it is fully active, will block the P13 kinase from activating the mTORC2, and that'll actually act as a feedback regulatory system, both for uh, slowing down AKT activation, but also for inhibiting or at least uh, tanking transcription, okay? So that's a really important issue to uh, keep in mind. So activated TCR induces tyrosine phosphorylation on several kinases. You see this also in a lot of disease states, such as in cancer. So you have oncogenic receptor tyrosine kinases. Or they're called RTKs, and they bind to and they phosphorylate pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase 1, Okay, in particular, particular, one of those kinases is called FGFR1, which we talked about before. It's a growth factor receptor. So you have two uh, TCR, that is T-cell receptor-induced kinases. It's called, they're called ZAP70 and the LUC, or LCK. And they share a lot of homology with this FGFR1 we just mentioned, which phosphorylates PDHK1, remember. That suggests at least that might bind to pH PDHK1 as well. Okay. And that would then provide for the full initiation stage for TCR activation. Now, in contrast to what I just said, <coughs> AKT, mTOR, ERK, P13 kinase, phospholipase C, and, pro- and from that protein kinase C, and calcium flux are all dispensable for the induction of that rapid glycolysis we were talking about last lecture. And that, remember, is involving the phosphorylation of PDHK1. So latter stage intracellular signal transduction cascades are not involved in that initial glycolytic fix, okay, that was set in motion by shutting off that a kinase, which then allowed for pyruvate dehydrogenase um, to function. So you remember how that went. So now I'm going to go jump ahead a few years and talk about a paper published in Frontiers in Immunologist in February 2013. And basically it gives you more floor detail of the activation function of the P13 kinase AKT signaling, specifically in the CD8 positive T lymphocyte. So upon engagement of the T cell receptor by an MHC1 peptide complex. This would be off an antigen-presenting cell, right? P13 kinase is going to be activated in the CD8-positive T lymphocytes. They're also going to get co-stimulation with various cytokines, such as interleukin-2, and chemokines, and they'll all further um, activate the P13 kinase. At the plasma membrane now, activated P13 kinase will phosphorylate phosphatidylinositol bisphosphate to generate phosphatidylinositol trisphosphate. So that's just a phospholipid in the membrane. That phospholipid then will recruit the pH domain-containing proteins, which include AKT1 and, that's right, PDK1. Okay. Full activation of the serine threonine kinase, AKT, then, 
of course, is going to require phosphorylation by both the PDK1 and by mTORC2. Now, that, while that's going on in the cytosol, AKT is going to phosphorylate and inhibit the tumor sclerosis uh, complex 1 slash 2, which, of course, is a negative regulatory complex of mTORC1. That, in turn, will promote mTORC1-mediated protein synthesis and cell growth of these CD8-positive T-cells. It'll do so via the modulation of S6 kinase and the 4-EBP. So cytosolic AKT also will inhibit the glycogen synthase kinase 3, and that means it'll be regulating glucose metabolism, and it'll also control the canonical Wnt-beta-catenin pathway. Now, one more thing to keep in mind, AKT will translocate to the nucleus, okay? And that, when it does so, it'll trigger a nuclear exclusion of the FOXO transcription factor. And that, those factors are important for cell quiescence and apoptosis. One more thing you have to keep in mind is that AMP kinase can actually send cellular energy status, such as energy depletion, Okay. And then it will interact with the uh, directly by a ratio mediated allosteric uh, response between uh, ADP, AMP, and also a protein called LKB1. All that will then regulate cellular metabolism by antagonizing the mTORC1 mediated glycolysis. Okay, so this is how AKT functions in a multifluorid way. Now, that was what was known in 2013. You know, we've gone beyond that now. We know that. There is a differential level where this AKT pathway, the P13 kinase AKT mTOR pathway, is happening um, between middle and late stage T cell development. And early stage development was pure glycolysis is going on, is regulated, remember, via that LDH, PDH, PDH kinase 1. Right? Okay. Now, Paper published in Experimental Molecular Medicine back uh, in 2019 will now bring us to talk about CD4 positive T cells. Naive CD4 positive T cells play a key role, of course, in the adaptive immune system. When you have the, uh, the naive CD4 positive, they're going to differentiate into the, our friends TH1, 2, and 17. Those are all effector T cells. But also CD4 positive T cells, the naive form, will, will can also be differentiated into regulatory T cells or Tregs. Now that all happens when they're activated via their cognate T cell receptor, plus a combination of other co-receptors. Uh, and that means in combination with cytokines, acting basically as growth factors. So every CD4 positive T cell subset expresses a lineage determining transcription factor, as we've said many times before on this program. And of course, that's going to activate a lineage specific gene repertoire, and it's going to drive cell differentiation into those various TH cells I just mentioned. Remember, Tbat is a lineage determining transcription factor of TH1, which mediates the clearance of intracellular pathogens and also facilitates the transcription of the interferon gamma gene. The lineage determining factor for TH2, which produce interleukins 4, 5, and 13 to induce immune responses to helminths, is, of course, that, that factor is GATA3. TH17 cells are going to express the ROR gamma T, that's retinoic acid, 
orphan receptor gamma T, and that's going to be its lineage determining factor. It's going to produce the cytokines, interleukin 17A, interleukin 17F, and IL-22. And of course, TH17 cells are going to be able to provide removal for extracellular bacteria and fungi. TH17 cells are also key factors in autoimmune diseases. Uh, two that have been studied to great extent have been multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. So you got the three subsets uh, of effector T cells, and all of those can induce pro-inflammatory um, sequelae. Contrast, you got the Tregs. They inhibit the differentiation proliferation of effector T cells, and they also negatively regulate immune-mediated inflammatory responses. So that means they can be used to control autoimmune diseases and allergies. Therefore, Tregs are crucial for immune homeostasis. But of course, if they're overexpressed or they work too abundantly in an infection site, they, uh, they can lead to uh, a higher level of um, microorganism attack, pathogenic attack. But they can also lead to tumor progression. And in aging, Tregs can lead to immunosenescence. Okay. So you get the potential for infection immunosenescence, and tumor formation of Tregs are too active. So here's a dialectic at this moment I want to bring up to you. The immune response is both the efficient and material cause of brain development. Metabolism with leukocytes, and more specifically lymphocyte classes, is the core mediator of those causal relationships. Lymphocytes carry out, of course, aerobic glycolysis, during an agentic activation, which we've been describing via the pyruvidehydrogenase axis, so to close the gap on efficiency of energy production in preparation for a massive transcriptional and translational provision, which is unique for cytokine and chemokine repertoire expression, thus directing differentiation ultimately into uh, the CD4 positive and CD8 positive lineages, that, as we have been saying. Now, almost an immediate induction of glycolysis observed post-TCR ligation with a molecular signature that is recognizably uh, a transcription, translation-independent mode. No detectable need for GLUT2 expression and no detectable need for massive glucose influx. The surprise is that the LDH activation leading to the conversion of pyruvate to lactate immediately after activation supports the short-term effector function. Indeed, LDH under limited oxygen conditions recognize that the oxidation of NADH in respiratory chain is not possible. So because of that limiting oxygen tension, the reduction of pyruvate catalyzed by lactodehydrogenase allows for a regeneration of NAD positive that is going to be the oxidized form, NAD plus, which are needed for gap dehydrogenase and thus the continuous generation of ATP to maintain the glycolytic flux. Therefore, under hypoxia, the reduction of pyruvate to lactate allows cells with high glycolytic activity to survive an anaerobic episode. This is really important. However, since the use of lactate for further metabolic processes can only take place after it's converted back to pyruvate, unless, of course, it is uh, sent out of the uh, lymphocyte, lactate production is a dead end for the cell's metabolism. 
Also, when pyruvate is not used as a substrate in the citric acid cycle and therefore oxidative phosphorylation down the road, the um, uh, V-acetyl-CoA synthesis and uh, also oxalacetic uh, acid synthesis via the pyruvate uh, carboxylase reaction, the amount of energy released per mole of oxidized glucose is actually ultimately reduced. Thus, in the anaerobic conditions, 18 times more glucose is needed to generate the same amount of energy as what you obtain when you're fully aerobic and running TCA, ETC, and OxFOS. Now, let me talk a little bit about lactic dehydrogenase. It, it occurs in multiple forms based on combinations of what are known as the AB proteins into various tetrameric complexes of the LDH. So it's going to result ultimately in five isoforms. Okay, you're going to have A1B3, A2B2, A3B1, B4 all, A4 all. And those are going to be LD1 through LD5. Now, there's a third type of LDH subunit known as C, and it's encoded by a very specific gene that's the LDHC or LDHX gene, and that's found actually on chromosome 11, P15.5 to P15.3. And it's a relatively homologous structure to the A protein component of the tetrameric fully functional LDH. It's about 75% identical. Uh, but also it has high sequence homology to the B subunits, about 70% identical. So the C, but obviously it has a unique function because the C subunit assembles into homotetramers, right, all C. And it was found to be sperm and testes specific. So it's interesting to note that the widespread existence of alternative splicing of that uh, LDHC gene was observed in, yeah, human cancers with a high frequency in lung cancer, melanoma, and breast cancer, but you never see it how they control tissue. This is something, it's a new, this is a new nuance for LDH. So I want you to keep in mind. So I'd like to do a lot, a lot of in, um, intermediary metabolism when I'm teaching you about the immune system because I want you to understand how key and important it is. Now, let's pull out of this for a while and remember why we're discussing this. The immune response, according to my theory on the subject, could function to generate the network synaptic connections in the brain during development and throughout uh, the aging process. Soon after, for example, an ischemic insult, you get increased levels of cytokines and chemokines, and they express the, they enhance the expression of adhesion molecules, and we talked about this. When that happens, it causes adhesion, and that results in trans-endothelial migration of circulating neutrophils and monocytes, right? All of those immune cells, those, those uh, innate immune cells, will accumulate in the capillary, and they'll decrease cerebral blood flow, and they can even extravasate into the brain parenchyma, as we've been saying. And besides all of that, they can infiltrate. The infiltrating they can infiltrate, and um, they can get involved or associate with neurons and microglia. And when they do that, they're going to induce neurons and microglia to actually release their own pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. Uh, and also, a lot of oxygen and nitrogen radicals are going to result because you're getting a lot of tissue damage at this point. Okay. Remember, we talked about the matrix metalloproteases, 
breaking down collagen, proteoglycan, laminin, and now all of that then can lead to the production of interleukin-1 beta. So you get a, a CNS insult, you get the production or the increase of interleukin-1-beta, the mature form, after the activation of proteolysis via the uh, metallic uh, 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 proteases. You also get then the binding of the IL-1-beta to its receptor. When it binds to its receptor, then what's going on at the cellular level is the following. At the endothelium, you get an increased permeability and upregulation of that ICAM. You get the glia to carry out astrogliosis, proliferation of the microglia, that would be a cell division, and release of several neurotoxins. And within the neurons, you also get that COX-2 induction, nanoinduction, and also the synthesis and secretion of TNF-alpha. All that is going to lead, of course, to brain damage. So these are all key features in this pathway, okay? Now, you can ask a question about these immune cells. This is something we were kind of leading to towards the end of the last talk. The immune cells and all those immunoregulatory cytokines and chemokines and growth factors, and including as well immunoglobulins, will recognize neurons and will recognize microglia according to their cell surface protein moieties. Now that's a mechanism for maintaining and increasing actually synaptic strength and obsolescence and indeed program, programmable cell death. All of that is mediated by a cellular phenomenon known as pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is really important. So you have microglia, which are also resident macrophages in the CNS. They're activated following a stimulation of many different recognition and phagocytic receptor signalings, all of which are pattern recognition receptors. That activation state is subsequently controlled by neurons, which secrete and ex uh, after expression numerous regulatory ligands. The end result of all those interactions is the release of cytokines, some of these neurotoxic substrates and our growth factors, and that's directly from the microglia. You also get the activation of cellular pathways, which can result in phagocytosis, cleaning up the cellular debris, basically. An aberrant function of any of those pathways during aging will give you a significant degeneration of the neuronal mass as well as the microglial mass, and then therefore can induce further exacerbation and more oxidative metabolism, more production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and more overall CNS neurodegeneration. Okay, so that's a really key feature here. Now, I'm gonna leave you with remembering that there's an interplay that's occurring here between the immune system, the central nervous system, and of course, the environment, right? So the immune system is able to interact with stress, both endogenous and exogenous. By exogenous stress, I could mean etiologic agents like pathogens. I could also talk about xenobiotics. You could also talk about severe atmospheric conditions, or let's say a decrease in oxygen tensions by not having good breathing control, or an increase in carbon monoxide for the same reasons. All of this will then turn on the immune system. The immune system is triggered 
via the innate into the acquired phenomena, such that recombination at the level of B cell receptors and T cell receptors will enhance a production of a repertoire of receptors on the surface of T and B cells respectively, which will allow them to interact directly with antigen-presenting cells and antigen-presenting cells carrying out through the MHC1 class um, presentation of antigens be able to induce certain T-cell lineages and not other T-cell lineages, and in particular, none of those so that they will affect host responses. Now, you can see just from that little brief discussion there how as the system ages and the T-cell receptor and the B-cell receptor recombination mechanisms slow down, and that's because of DNA damage and lack of functional, um, coherent DNA damage repair mechanisms, you lead to a faulty system for recognition of antigen presentation, and you start picking up false positive activation of T cells. And when that occurs, the entire armamentarium of the innate immune response and the acquired immune response can go to work on host cells. And that's how you get these uh, autoimmune diseases, which again trigger then because of um, high levels of autoinflammation in discrete pockets of cells that are normally very metabolically active, such as in the central nervous system or in neural systems in the periphery, that can indeed cause a lot of neurodegeneration, but also can induce rapid cell division, and that can lead then to tumors formation. You can imagine now that it's going to all be then triggered by a, a faulty interaction of the use of carbon sources in bioenergetics. And also it's going to lead to potent periods of hypoxia, which can further exacerbate the problem because driving too much glycolysis in certain cells, like for example, rampant aerobic glycolysis in uh, early tumor cells, will lead to their rapid growth, right? And then later on, if beta oxidation is allowed to occur because there's a high enough level of oxygen tensions, then you're gonna get an influx of fatty acids, which will further cause damage to tissues because of auto-oxidation of fatty acids with multiple double bonds or with, indeed, with cholesterol, making oxysterols, which are all carried on circulating lipoproteins, right? So all of that is something I want you to remember, you know, from what all the things we were just discussing here. So I think we're going to just go back and cap a little bit more, finish off this AKT signaling. So CD28 and AKT, sing AKT signaling have been shown to be critical for the upregulation of metabolic machinery and the maintenance of glycolysis throughout T-cell expansion, Okay. The initiating events of glycolysis occur, of course, as I've been saying, immediately after T-cell activation. And CD28 and AKT are, uh, are independent of that early stage, right? But AKT may play a much larger role in memory T-cells, which, remember, are increased upon aging, right? Now, that's rather than in vitro generated T-cells, which can occur in the periphery. So that promotes then a metabolic switch, if you will, suggesting 
additional complexity in the regulation of those signaling patterns and pathways, which are going to then provide distinct differentiation states. So the paper that we're talking about for AKT and for early turn-on glycolysis via the LDH, PDH, PDHK1 pathway, that paper suggested that PDHK1 mediated initiation of aerobic glycolysis while required for optimal cytokine production and secretion will not be required for effective cell proliferation and cytolytic functioning. So using PDHK1 inhibition as a reversible inhibitor of the LDH activity and clearly aerobic glycolysis could play a role in the regulation of differentiation in a way that is distinct from the control of the acute later stage effector function of T cells. So it's another way of getting at it, right? So in naive T cells, you have a chemokine called CCL3, and that's rapidly secreted in response to activation. And it's also under glycolytic control. So it bear, so it, it's turned on via a, a translation machinery. And this involves a three prime untranslated region. Now that suggests there's a range of proteins that could be modulated at the translational level by rapid glycolytic flux. And what that could suggest is evidence for rapid activation-induced glycolysis, maybe a general T-cell phenomenon, regardless of whatever the differentiation state is beyond the naive. Okay, so I wanted to get that in towards the end. And we're going to say uh, from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.